We are continuing our series this morning on heaven and hell, and this will be the most difficult of our four weeks because this morning we're talking about the subject of hell. If you're here for the very first time, we're glad you're here. Welcome. You should know this is week three of a four-week series. Uh, Week one, we talked about what happens to us when we die. Uh, Last week, we talked about heaven, what is heaven like, and particularly the heaven that is coming when Jesus returns. And this week, we're talking about hell. Uh, We'll close out next week by talking about the justice of God in in heaven and hell, in eternal life. Is God unfair is going to be the emphasis of that talk. So a lot of the questions you may have about heaven and hell and who goes where, we're going to try to answer next week. So this is a hard topic. Nobody likes to talk about hell. And yet, as I think about the topic and as I've preached it in the past, what always comes to my mind is that to not talk about hell, if we never talked about it from the scripture, that would be a sort of pastoral malpractice on our part. And what I mean is this, by way of analogy, if you were to go to the doctor this week for your annual physical or every two or three years or however often you go, if you were to go and he runs a bunch of tests, blood tests and does a workup and finds out that you have terminal cancer, you would need to know that, right? But if the doctor said, you know what, I think that's going to make them feel bad if I don't tell them, you'd say, well, that's malpractice, right? If I'm sick, if I'm dying, I need to know. And it is the doctor's responsibility. He has a moral obligation to tell me about it. To not do so would be malpractice. Now, when we talk about hell in the analogy here, actually, hell is not the cancer. Hell is the death that we suffer as a result of having a sickness called sin. All right, sin is the cancer. Rejection of God is the cancer. Hell is the death. What hell is, and we'll talk about this as the sermon continues, hell is eternal separation from God. When you look at the concept of death biblically, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, death is separation, right? When you die, your body separates from your spirit. That's not natural. And for those who find themselves in hell, that is a separation of the person from God forever. It's an unnatural, unintended separation. Human beings were not made to be separate from God. Now, even though we don't like to talk about hell, the reality is that most people in our culture still believe it exists. I ran across a survey, a 2014 survey uh, done by CBS News, and they asked people, what are your views on the afterlife? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Where do you think you're going to land? And in that survey, they found 77% of Americans still believe in heaven. They still believe that there is a heaven that people go to. 77%. 66% of Americans also believe that hell exists. Right? So there are fewer, certainly, who believe in hell. But the majority of Americans, 66%, still believe that hell is a real place. And then they asked, do you think you're going to hell? And 2% of those people believe that they are going to end up there. While 82% would say, I'm going to heaven. 
And I presume the other 16% said, look, I just don't know. Right? So people believe that hell exists, but they basically believe that hell is for other people. It's not for me. It's for people worse than I am. So one of the things we're going to talk about from the scripture this morning is who ends up in hell as we look at the scriptures. Every so often also the the concept of hell comes to the forefront of our culture. Most notably in the last few years, I was thinking about in 2011, uh, after Osama bin Laden, the terrorist, was found and killed. Some of you will remember Mike Huckabee, the politician, he sent out a statement. It simply said, welcome to hell, OBL. Welcome to hell, OBL, or Osama bin Laden. And in fact, there were protesters uh, outside the White House with signs that said, welcome to hell, OBL. And they marched around and chanted in joy that he was in hell. Right around the same time, there was a former pastor by the name of Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. And some of you will remember when he wrote this book because it was controversial and he questioned some of the traditional views on hell. And the conclusion of his book was this. History is not tragic. Hell is not forever. And love in the end wins. And all will be reconciled to God. Now, I, I was thinking about that juxtaposition at the time between people's joy that Osama bin Laden was in hell and Rob Bell's insistence that nobody goes to hell forever, right? And it raised these questions in my mind. Would heaven be heaven if you had an unrepentant Osama bin Laden wandering around? Is there a place for the punitive justice of God. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago one popular show on TV right now. It's called The Good Place. And The Good Place explores some of these questions of heaven and hell and who goes where. Right? So clearly it's a topic that people are interested in, that our culture still talks about. And yet, every time I have preached on the topic, I have people come up and they say something like this I have been in church all my life. I've been in a Bible teaching church all my life, and I've never heard a sermon on hell. It didn't always used to be that way, by the way, in our churches. But in the last hundred years in particular, the doctrine of hell has largely dropped off the menu in many churches. But perhaps the most famous sermon in all of American history, was preached about 300 years ago by Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan preacher and theologian. Many of you would have had to read his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You probably read it at some point in junior high or high school literature class, or at least you were supposed to. You said you did. I'm going to read a few selections from it this morning, just to give you an idea of how people used to talk about hell in their sermons. This is Jonathan Edwards, a selection from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast 
into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not, this very moment, drop down into hell. How are you feeling? I'm going to read a little bit more. (laughs) O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the divine, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And we don't hear sermons like that a lot anymore. In fact, I read just this week upon the passing of Billy Graham, interestingly, in 1949, his most famous crusade, the Los Angeles crusade, uh, he ran out of sermons to preach at one point. And so he read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. They say when Edwards read the sermon, people called out, what must I do to be saved? How can I escape those terrors? So this morning, what we're going to talk about from the Scripture is very simply a couple of questions. All right, the first question is this. What is hell like? What does the Bible tell us about hell? It might surprise you to know that Jesus actually talked about hell a lot. We tend to think of Jesus as basically very mild-mannered, walking around and and more or less smiling at people, carrying a sheep over his shoulder. But the reality is that most of the passages in the New Testament on the subject of hell come from the teachings of Jesus. So we're going to look at what does the Bible tell us about hell, and then how should we respond to the doctrine of hell as believers in Jesus Christ? Now, it won't surprise you to to find out that where we're ultimately going to land is with this concept that if heaven and hell are real, if we believe that the Scripture is true, which we do, and we believe that the Scripture teaches the reality of heaven and hell, then what that means is that this raises the urgency for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. If we believe hell is real, And if we believe that the only escape is faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that changes, I think, how we approach our lives. It changes how we approach those in our neighborhood, in our families, at our places of work, or in our classes who do not yet know the life of God given freely in Jesus Christ. I ran across a video some time ago 
made by the magician Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. And Penn Gillette is an atheist, right? But in this video, he told a story about a guy who came up after one of his shows and gave him a Bible and said he was praying for him and he had highlighted some verses. And Penn Gillette said, you know, some people ask me as an atheist, am I offended when people proselytize or try to share the gospel with me? And he said, no, I'm not offended. In fact, he said, I don't respect Christians who do not proselytize. And here's what he said. He said, look, on some level, at some point, if you believe, if you really believe there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, how much do you have to hate somebody? Never to tell him. And so he said, that was a good man, even though I disagree. If heaven and hell are real, this raises the urgency for us to proclaim the good news. Where we're going to start this morning then is we're going to ask, what does the Bible say about the doctrine of hell? What are the characteristics from the scripture of hell that we want to know about from God's word? The first one is this, that hell is just. Hell is just. Now, when I say just, I want to distinguish it from another concept that we may have in our brains, and that is the concept of fairness. We'll talk more about this next week. But we say hell is just, but we want to distinguish from the concept of fairness. What do I mean when I say fairness? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that on your way home from church today, you drop by the grocery store, and you buy a cake for your family to enjoy. And you cut that cake into eight equal slices and you place one slice on a plate and another slice on a plate. And if you have children, you begin to dole that cake out to your children. As you begin to hand out the pieces of cake, there's a 95% chance that you're going to hear what? His piece is bigger than my piece. And that is unfair. Right? Why? What are they concerned about? They're concerned with equality. Now, my parents had two different ways of handling that complaint. My dad's way of handling it was simply to say, life isn't fair. Get used to it. I hated when he said that. And yet it is so true. My mom's way was this. She would say this. She would say, okay, if you're going to complain, then one of you can cut the cake and the other chooses their piece. And so as you can imagine, the person cutting the cake, you could measure it with a laser. (laughs) They were so equal. Why? Because we were most concerned about fairness, equality. Fairness means everybody gets the same thing. And yet as you look at the scripture, you actually see passages that indicate fairness is not God's primary goal. Everybody doesn't get the same thing. I mean, of course, that's patently obvious as we look around the world, right? Some people are born with more advantages than other people, more money or more ability or better looking or whatever it may be. Some people are clearly born with more natural advantages. But even as you look at the scripture, think for a moment about Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the vineyard. Remember, you have a man who owns a vineyard. And Jesus tells this story and he says, look, uh, there's a man who owns a vineyard and he goes out around nine o'clock in the morning and he hires some guys and he, he makes an agreement. I'll pay you X amount of money for your work day. So they begin to work and he goes out about noon and he goes out about three and he hires more people. 
And then about five o'clock, an hour before quitting time, he hires some other guys and they work for an hour. And then what happens? They all gather together to get paid and he pays the ones he hired last. He pays them first. He pays them a full denarius for the whole day. And these guys who were hired at nine o'clock, it says they thought they were going to get more. And yet they get a denarius. What do they say? Unfair. Unfair. But what does the landowner say back to them? He says, hey, don't I have a right to do with my own money what I want? Did I cheat you? No, I paid you what we agreed upon. If I want to give them more out of grace, that's my right. When you look at the scripture, when we talk about justice, here's what we mean, that God always does what is right. Nobody will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, you did the wrong Nobody will stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I don't deserve to be punished for rejecting God. When we look at the doctrine of hell, ultimately what we're saying is this. Nobody will end up in hell and be able to say to God, that's not right. Because God is always right. Now, that, I realize, raises some questions. We're going to talk about a lot of these questions next week. What about people who never hear about Jesus? What about people who are incapable of understanding the message of the gospel? Uh, Babies or those with uh, severe mental handicaps. We'll talk about all of that next week. But as we look at the scripture, the clear message of scripture is that hell is a just punishment for those who have rejected God. And in fact, the message is clear from the scripture that all of us deserve it. And I think the reason we're uncomfortable with this is because we are uncomfortable at times with the concept of a God who would, who would allow just punishment. We're uncomfortable, in fact, with the very concept, I think, of punishment itself. Here's what I mean. If you have children, when you say, look, my kid was sassy or my kid hit his brother and I need to punish him. So you send them to their room or you give them a spanking or whatever it is. Really what you're doing is not true punishment, is it? It's correction. The goal is you want that child to learn not to do those things in the future, right? So you send them to their room and they will eventually get out of their room. You spank them and the spankings will end and the goal is correction or discipline. And so we're uncomfortable sometimes with strict punishment except at times when we look at very severe crimes. So over the course of the past week, for example... All of us probably have followed the tragic news of the shooting in Florida at a high school. And my guess is this, that when the man who committed that crime was arrested, many of us had a thought like this, he deserves the death penalty. He deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life. Now, the purpose of those punishments would not be restorative, would it? It would be punitive. Even in our legal system, we recognize that there is a place for punishment. Ultimately, when we talk about hell from the Scripture, hell is presented as a just punishment, and the crime is rejecting the one who made us. Let me look at a couple of passages really quickly. Matthew 25 Jesus talking about those 
who end up in hell, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is presented as a just punishment for what crime? Ultimately, the crime of rejecting Jesus. As you look at particularly the book of Romans, what Romans presents is this, that every single person on the face of the earth deserves to be separated from God forever because we have sinned against God. We all as a, as a nation, as a world, as a race of people, we all said, God, I don't want your way, right? That began with Adam and Eve. We said, I don't want to obey and submit to God. So we sinned against God. And that merits eternal punishment. Right, But as you look at the scripture, the really good news is that Jesus took our punishment, right? Jesus died for all the sins of humanity. And after three days, as we sang earlier, he rose from the dead. And he offers eternal life to all who will believe. So that now the reason that anybody ends up separated from God for eternity, the reason anybody would end up there, is because of rejecting Jesus Christ. And ultimately saying, I don't want God's way. I don't want God's salvation. Paul would say this later on in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. For after all, it is only just or right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. And so the the scripture consistently presents hell as a just punishment for those who ultimately reject Jesus Christ, that nobody will stand before God and say, you did the wrong thing. So hell is just. Secondly, as we look at the scripture, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal, meaning it goes on forever. This aspect of the doctrine of hell is probably the most unpopular as we look at the scripture. It's so hard for us to understand eternity to begin with. And so the concept of eternal punishment for the rejection of Jesus Christ, is, it's a hard doctrine. There's a theologian, his name is Clark Pinnock, and he does not agree with the doctrine of eternal hell. And here's how he puts his position. He says, let me say at the outset, that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any moral standards." Now, Pinnock uses language as strong for his position as Jonathan Edwards did for his position. And you notice he begins with this idea that if God is loving, then that love must trump every other attribute. And so a God who would punish in this way, Pinnock says, that's not the God I want. 
And he raises a good question, and I think it's a question we will also take up next week. Is it just of God to punish sinners eternally for sins that are committed in a finite period of time? We're going to talk about that question next week as well. I'm pushing that to next week because for today I want to stay focused on this idea that as much as we might wish that hell was temporary, the evidence of the Scripture is that it is eternal. Allow me to show you a couple of passages in that regard. First from Revelation chapter 20. The Apostle John wrote this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, hell is made for who? It's made for the devil. It's made for the devil's angels. But there are those who have rejected Jesus who end up in the same lake of fire with the same punishment, tormented day and night forever and ever. So hell, as much as we would like to think it's temporary, the scripture seems to indicate that it is eternal. When Jesus talked about it in Matthew 25, notice he says, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a parallel structure here. We all agree that the life for those who trust Jesus is eternal. It goes on forever and ever. In order to be true to the word of God and the the structure here, I think we have to acknowledge that the punishment itself is eternal. There there is a viewpoint in Christian circles called annihilationism. And annihilationism holds essentially that those who go to hell will suffer for a period of time in proportion with their sins on the earth. And then they will simply be vanquished no more, to be no more. And it's an attractive option from a psychological point of view. I wish that I could hold to it, but as I look at the Scripture, what I see is that the testimony of Scripture leans strongly in the direction of hell being eternal. And that was the traditional belief, really, of the Christian church well up into the 19th and 20th centuries. And so we're going to talk more next week about is that just, is it right for the punishment to be eternal for finite sins? But we see hell is both just and hell is eternal. Thirdly, that leads us to the third point here, which is hell is terrible. It's terrible. I don't know how many of you used to read the comic strip The Far Side by Gary Larson. Uh, it was one of my favorite comic strips, just a one-panel strip. Gary Larson uh, drew comic strips about a variety of things. Uh, one of his favorite subjects was cows, a lot of cartoons about cows. But he also liked drawing uh, comics about hell. Except in his hell, it was always the punishments were a little bit comical. Right? So if you went to hell, the coffee was always cold. Everything else was hot, but the coffee was cold. If you went to hell, you had to do cardiovascular exercise every single day for the rest of your life, all day long. Or Satan would play the accordion, and you had to listen to accordion music for eternity. That was his concept of hell. And they always would elicit a chuckle, and I acknowledge I would chuckle when I read them. But he was able to write about hell in that way, because ultimately, if you know anything about Gary Larson, he didn't believe it was real. 
And so he could joke about it. But as we look at the scripture, what we really see is is that hell is unimaginable torment in body and spirit. Uh, We read from Luke chapter 16 a couple of weeks ago, remember the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to read a little bit of it again, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. And remember, this is the story where the, the rich man goes to Hades, goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And as the rich man describes his experience, take note of how many times he mentions pain and agony. And keep in mind, this is from the mouth of Jesus. Luke chapter 16, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And it would go on and the rich man says, well, then send someone to my brothers so they don't have to experience This torment and agony. Over and over again, Jesus would emphasize this reality about hell. Again, in the book of Luke chapter 13, Jesus said, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. It is physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, because hell is ultimately a separation from God. Remember, anything good you see in the world, it comes from the hand of God. Anything good you experience, any joy comes from the hand of God. So separation from God is the absence of all good, the absence of all joy, the absence of all hope. Remember, as we said, hell was designed not for humanity, but for the devil himself. And yet those who choose to align against God and to align against Jesus and say, I want my way instead of his, find themselves suffering the same punishment. And so hell is just, it's eternal, it's terrible. But ultimately where we're going to land this morning is also this, it's avoidable. Hell is just, it's eternal, it's terrible, it's avoidable. Here's what I mean. Every time in the scripture that the doctrine of hell is discussed, it is discussed in the context of turning away from sin and trusting Jesus Christ. It's discussed in the context of the gospel that there is a way out, that God in his mercy and grace has provided a way out in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again so that we can have eternal life. In fact, in 2 Peter, Peter would say this, that the reason God is waiting to return, he says, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I was reminded as I studied this topic a few weeks ago, of a seminary professor I had in in a class that I took about the Old Testament prophets. 
And we talked about how when a prophet was sent by God to proclaim that judgment was coming, the reason God sent the prophet was so that people would repent and avoid the judgment. So think for a moment about Jonah. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and you need to proclaim that because of their wickedness, God is going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. And Jonah didn't go. Right? You know why Jonah didn't go? It wasn't because he was afraid of the Ninevites. It's because he hated the Ninevites. And he knew, he says at the end of the book, I knew God, I knew that you're a gracious God. And if I preached to them, they would repent and you would forgive them. So Jonah walked around the city and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And you know, Jonah never Follow that up by saying, but if you repent, God will forgive you. But the people understood it, didn't they? They figured God would not send a prophet to talk about judgment unless he was calling us to repent. And so they say, who knows? Let's repent. Maybe God will be merciful. And I remember this professor, he leaned forward into the microphone in the class and he said this, if God wanted to destroy people, he would do it. He wouldn't send a warning. If God wants you dead, you're dead. He sends a warning to say there's still time. There's still hope. Some of you, if you have kids, at some point in their lives, they probably have gotten out of control. Run through the house. They're fighting. They're disobeying. And maybe you've said something like this to them. You are cruising for a bruising. You're cruising for a bruising. Now, you never follow that up necessarily with the statement, but if you change your mind, then the rest of the afternoon can be much better for you. But you hope they understand. Look, the, the pathway that you're on right now, you are cruising for a bruising. So stop that pathway and turn around. 80% of the time, they continue toward the bruising, don't they? But you have warned. And as we look at the scripture, that's what we see. That God is waiting and God is calling and God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to deal with the problem of sin so that hell is avoidable. Peter would also say this, 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? so that he might bring us to God. That's what he wants to do. Multiple times in the New Testament, it says God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so through creation, through conscience, through the word of God, through Jesus Christ, he's always calling out. There's always an opportunity until the day you meet God himself. This is why Paul would say that his mission is to proclaim the reconciliation of God. The Apostle Paul would write, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, my mission is this, to proclaim this news to everybody I can. That Jesus died and Jesus rose so that we 
can be with God forever. So we don't have to be separated from him in hell. And Paul was willing to die for that message because he believed in the truth of the gospel. So he says, we implore you be reconciled to God. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the message of the sermon for you this morning is what Jesus says, that he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so God is calling out and giving you an opportunity this morning to trust in Jesus Christ for your sin to be forgiven and eternal life. And if we know Jesus Christ, the message of God's word is that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. That we constantly call out that God offers grace and mercy to those who need it. At the beginning of my sermon, I read a little bit from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And often we remember the beginning or the middle of the sermon, but we might not remember the end of the sermon. You might not have finished it when you were in junior high. And so I want to read a little bit from the end of the sermon so you can see how Jonathan Edwards ended this discussion about the judgment of God and about hell. Here's how he ended. He says, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are your souls are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? He says, the reason I'm telling you about hell is because we want you in heaven. One last story as we close. About 10 years ago, I ran across a news story from China, from Zhejiang province in China. And uh, the story was this, that uh, two men were driving along a bridge in Zhejiang province, the Zhejiang Bridge, and it was an early morning, and it was foggy. They could only see a little bit in front of them. And, and, and a truck passed them on the bridge, and they noticed that immediately that truck's headlights or taillights disappeared into the fog. I mean, just disappeared. They said, we were driving slowly, so we stopped the car and got out to figure out what was going on. Where did it go? And they walked forward on the bridge, and that was when they noticed that the center section of the bridge had simply collapsed into the river below. And that truck had just gone over the edge into the water. And they were only a few meters from the edge of where the bridge had broken, and so they pulled back. 
They called the police. And then they stood in the center of that bridge and they waved at cars as they came forward to tell them to stop before they plunged into the river. They said people thought we were trying to rob them as we stood on the river. Some people stopped. They stopped eight cars. Some people didn't. And they drove right past the warning. And some people died in the river below. But they said, knowing the bridge was out, we couldn't stand and do nothing as people plunged to their death. And so they were willing to risk looking like fools to save a few lives. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm an ambassador of reconciliation. So again, as we close, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? And then secondly, if you have, will you be an ambassador of Christ? imploring those around you, be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, we are grateful that in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal life. We are grateful that you are a God who loves us, who wants people to know you, and has provided a way for us to know you and be with you for eternity. If there are any in this room this morning, who don't know Jesus Christ yet. I pray your spirit would convict and that today would be the day that they trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I pray that we would be ambassadors of the reconciliation God offers in Jesus Christ day after day, year after year, until Jesus returns. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.